the Holy Prophet foretold of a Prophet, one which would be the second coming of Jesus Christ, a Mahdi, a reformer, who would revive Islam and lead it forward into a new era of success. The Holy Prophet requested his companions to convey his salam to this reformer of the new age. He said, when you hear the advent of the Mahdi, then enter into his fold, even if you have to walk on snow by crawling and creeping to reach him. The role and sole purpose of this subordinate prophet was made clear. He would revive Islam, unite all its sects, and establish a caliphate which would strengthen Islam and lead it forward into a new age. I give you the glad tidings of Mahdi, who will be raised in my Ummah at a time of digression and distress of people. He will fill the earth with equity and justice as it is filled with oppression and violence. But how could this promised man recognize that he was the one? It could only be through a revelation from God, and this revelation was received by the noble and humble Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad in 1891 in the small town of Qadian to the east of Damascus. It is now the duty of every Muslim to come forward and accomplish the appeal of the Holy Prophet to join in to the fold of this Prophet, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad the Reformer, the Mahdi, the Promised Messiah. I call to witness God Almighty who holds my life in His hand, that compared to every other soul, He has gifted me with overwhelmingly greater ability and access to the understanding and the deeper wisdom of the Holy Qur'an. If any of the Maulvis who oppose me in response to my repeated invitations had attempted to outshine me in the exposition of the Holy Qur'an, God would have most certainly frustrated his attempts and exposed his ignorance. Hence, the understanding of the Qur'an which has been granted me is a sign of Allah, the Glorious, and I have full trust in Allah's grace that soon the world will begin to see that I am true in this claim. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. My peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Today is Monday, the 2nd of October 2023. The time is 7.05 a.m. And you're listening to Daniel Zah and Imam Nabil Patti live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. As is the norm, we have two topics for you today. The first topic is about time to is about helping um, or actually um, lending a helping hand and how well uh, we handled um, or handle various disasters around the world which uh, have rather become commonplace. So that's something we will start at about um, 7.30am and from uh, 8.20am onwards we shall uh, talk about why some people are always late. Um, Yes, so uh, very interesting uh, topics. Do join us for both of these discussions by calling us at 0208687 You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. 
And on that note, a very warm welcome back to the studios, Imam Bhatti. How are you doing? Yes, I'm good. I'm loving the grace of Allah. Um, good to be here again. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Yeah, good to see you. Yes. So yeah, how was um, how was your break? You you went to the Germany convention as well. Yes, I did. Um, um, so the first week of September is, uh, I think, it was straight after the UK annual convention. We started preparing for the Germany annual convention, where His Holiness also attended. So you went there on official uh, duty? Yeah, yeah, official duty. Oh, you were there for MTA. Wow, yeah, okay. Yes, yes. Right, um, right. So what our plan was, um, usually we do go every year mm-hmm. um, just to record some interviews, some offline pieces. But this time um, we thought of doing like a live ground link from the Germany uh, annual convention. Um, so one of our studios in Africa were actually um, going live from there. Um, so that various topics uh, to go through, just generally like how UK Jolsa goes. And then um, they would directly via Skype link to us on the ground where right. we interview people live um, regarding their feelings, etc. Um, and yeah, it was good. It was all done through a phone. We had uh, no, you know, because it's the first time um, we thought let's experiment. Yeah. So with a phone and a tripod, and that's it. For and tripod, you were able to interview and connect interview, to the to yeah, the to the, to the, to the studios. Yes, and they, wow, yeah. okay, awesome. Um, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I was wondering actually because you're part of MT Africa, and I was yes. wondering why would you go to Germany? So yeah, yeah so that explains it. So so Africa live. Af- well, it is usually is already caught in is that um, there's more Africans in Germany that come to annual convention hmm. than in the UK. Um, I it's easier to go to Germany um, you know it could be visa restrictions or whatever it is right so usually what we do is um, from the previous years we usually go there and interview Africans for various pieces throughout the year um, mm-hmm. you know like small fillers etc about their experiences me and the Cali for the first time which can be used throughout the year for our channels um, so ideally we that's our main purpose to see a lot more Africans um, but this time um, we thought of um, let's go live from there and see how how it works out um, for the future as well. So so that was it was a good experience to be honest and to be you know that shows how much can be can be done. You don't need to full set of cameras or anything. Hmm. Um, you can get it done with the technology you have at your hand nowadays. So it's just good. So uh, tell me, uh, help me understand this. So um, MTA, which is the Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, of course. So it has two channels in Africa. So yes. how how do they sort of divide the content? So 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 what it is is that one channel co- covers West Africa, mm-hmm. and the other channel covers East Africa. Right. So every channel will have um, its own requirements. Right. Okay. So, because we have um, quite a few studios in Africa which produce those programs, etc., in various languages and topics. So, every studio will have its quarterly targets to provide this many amount of programs right. for these two channels. Um, because we, 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 um, once they do produce those programs, we schedule them onto the channels. Sure. Um, because there's a lot. There's a lot of content that can be done from here as well. We have a lot of African brothers here. Sure. And uh, we do try to produce some series um, which can, you know, um, for the audiences on those channels. Africa in terms of, it has a very wide, I would say, um, set of eyes um, compared to our other channels on MTA. I'm not going to try to take it away from there. So Hmm. um, there's a lot more topics you can cover. We're not limited in that such 
um, to just religious topics only. Okay. Um, we can cover education, sports, etc., which actually does help out in various circumstances if you want to have, you know, external contracts with the companies. Because mm. um, they, we try to use that as a leverage for them to give us a couple of hours so that we can push our programs onto their channels. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, so right. in terms of that, it's very helpful, yeah. Okay, excellent. So, so uh, do you also are are you also able to share content between Africa One and Africa Two? Yes, of course. Okay, yeah, that's right. that's that's not an issue. Once we do produce our programs, if uh, all the other, if there if there's other channels that want to take their programs, they f- feel free to take them. There's there's okay. no limited just for those two channels. Awesome. Thank you very much uh, for that. Right. Um, Let's go now straight to the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. So Rishi Sunak's comments to the BBC on the first day of the Conservative Party conference are the focus of the main story in Monday's Metro. The Prime Minister has recommitted to his target to slash inflation in order to convince voters to back him at the next general election. Easy Rider is the caption on an image celebrating Europe's triumphant golfers who beat the US to win the Ryder Cup in Italy. The ISA is Rishi Sunak is battling to maintain discipline over Tories positioning themselves to succeed him as a leader. A number of cabinet ministers have made policy, uh, public policy interventions in recent days, which many commentators have interpreted as leadership pitches. The Guardian takes a similar line to the eye, saying that the Prime Minister's efforts to galvanize the party are foundering amid tax and culture wall battles. The main image is of a gymnast, Simone Biles, who has competed at a, who has competed at a major gymnastics event for the first time in two years. Former Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has told the Telegraph he urged Rishi Sunak to boost Rishi Sunak to boost defence funding for Ukraine around the time he left the cabinet, writing in the newspaper he reveals. He called for an extra £2.3 billion to be spent and says Germany has overtaken the British government as the large, largest European military donor to give. Hospitals are facing steep bills to pay for cover during strikes by doctors, with one medic receiving a payment of £7,900 for a shift. This, according to the Times. Junior doctors and consultants are set to start another round of industrial action on Monday. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan also announced a ban on mobile phones in classrooms in England. The Daily Mail reports this. It says the new guidance will also apply to phones being used during breaks. In a move, the paper says it's designed to end disruption and make it easier for pupils to focus. The Daily Express leads on a preview of Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's conference speech in which he says he wants to incentivize workers over claiming benefits. He will also pledge that the national living wage will rise to at least £11 an hour next year. The Daily Mirror's front page unveils a number of high-profile celebrity backers for his campaign calling for free school meals for every primary school child. Olivia Coleman, Kate Winslet and Brian Cox are among those supporting the campaign. The Financial Times reports that the knock-on effect of the government's decision to weaken climate targets could mean British firms expecting um, to export to the European Union face higher taxes under rules due to be introduced by the bloc in 2026. So those were the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. A reminder of the two topics. The first topic is about... Uh, managing disaster, disaster relief. So we'll be talking to a couple of disaster relief experts um, 
in the next uh, hour or so, um, actually starting at 7.30 a.m. And uh, the topic, the second topic, which we shall start around 8.20 a.m. today, is about uh, running late. So why people, why some people are always, always late. Right. Um, we will now take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue this discussion on what's actually making the headlines in UK newspapers this morning. Do stay tuned. of Islam Radio. God. Gracious God is He who has created the sun and the moon for our benefit. The sun with which human life and the life of vegetation is associated. Through the attribute of Rahman, God grants without being asked. Can one say that the sun or the earth was created on account of one's deeds? Rahman is a being that grants beneficence of the kind that man does not have the capacity of giving. It is by virtue of being gracious that all creation receives God's universally prevalent beneficence. Prophets of God summon people to the gracious God for people's own good and not for any recompense. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, states, The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was the perfect manifestation of Rahman because his beneficence is incomparable. 
being the perfect man. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had this quality in him more than anyone else. And an ordinary person, too, should aspire to the paradigm, deriving luminosity from the sun of 1400 years ago. In this age, the promised Messiah, on whom be peace, has further spread the light. The light of the promised Messiah, on whom be peace, is from that same gracious God. The quality of Rahmaniyat is pure favor and munificence and is not caused by any good act and is not the fruit or reward of anything. Despite humanity rejecting God, His Rahmaniyat remains overwhelming. If it were not for this divine quality, majority of humanity would have been destroyed because of its misdemeanors and sins. Despite rejecting God, people are asking, who is the gracious God? Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We're talking about headlines appearing in the newspapers uh, this morning. We'll, we'll do that for ne- another 10 minutes or so. And after that, we will delve right into the first topic, which is about disaster management. Um, that discussion, as I said, will start at 7.30 a.m. In terms of what um, what else um, is um, is prominent in the headlines this morning, uh, Imam Bhatti, anything caught your eye? Um, Jeremy Hunt um, said he's to confirm the national living wage to rise to £11 an hour. Um, so he was saying that uh, in a speech to the Conservative Party conference, Jeremy Hunt ex- is expected to say the move will benefit 2 million of the lowest paid workers, he will also say he tends to toughen sanctions for people on benefits who do not take steps to find work. It comes as the government's under pressure for some Tories to cut taxes. Um, the national living wage, which is currently £10.42 an hour, sets out, uh, sets out the lowest amount workers aged 23 and over can be paid per hour by law. Um, of course, younger workers are paid at a lower rate. The rates are decided each year by the government based on the advice of an independent advisory group, the Low Pay Commission. Um, ministers generally accept the Commission's recommendations. The government had already set a target for the national living wage to reach two-thirds of median hourly pay by October next year. Um, so that's also there's a, there's a strike which carried out in Turkey. Um, so Turkey says it has carried out a number of airstrikes on Kurdish rebels in northern Iraq hours after suicide blasts hit the interior ministry. The government said 20 targets were destroyed and many militants from the banned PKK rebel group were neutralized. Um, the PKK said Sunday morning's bombings in the capital Ankara was carried out by the group linked to them. 
a member of which who blew himself up. A second attacker was killed by the police and two police officers were injured. Um, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, is considered, it's considered a terror group in Turkey, the EU, UK and US. Sunday's airstrikes targeted caves, depots, bunkers used by the PKK, um, Turkey's defence minister had said. Um, so this is currently what's happening in Turkey. Right. Thank you very much uh, for that, Imam Bhatti. Um, the Guardian talks about uh, UK families eating less healthily due to the cost of living crisis. So according to uh, this article appearing in The Guardian this morning, families are eating less healthily and turning to ready meals and processed food due to the cost of living crisis. This is according to a study. So more than two-thirds of people, 69% approximately, said they considered themselves to be healthy eaters, but 28% said they were eating less nutritious food because it is too expensive, according to the BBC Good Food Nation survey. The study of twenty, um, uh, the study of two thousand and thirteen adults across the UK found that nineteen percent are eating more ready meals and processed foods because they are cheaper, while seventeen percent are cooking less from scratch. The survey, which looks at shopping, cooking, and eating habits, found that three in five people, almost sixty percent, have changed what they eat due to the rising cost of ingredients. This includes 16% who said they have cut back on organic ingredients and 12% who said they were eating less protein as they struggled to cope with higher food bills. The study found that 15% are taking more packed lunches to work to save money. Meanwhile, over a quarter of respondents said they had changed their supermarket due to the cost of living crisis and 4% said they had used food banks or alternatives to shops. More than two-thirds of people said price was the most important factor when picking a supermarket. And uh, amid, the, uh, amid all of this discussion, Aldi reports that uh, record UK sales um, uh, this year as shoppers change habits in the cost of living crisis. So overall, 61% said that the cost of living crisis had affected their healthy eating habits in some way, including being more conscious uh, conscious of eating healthily because they cannot afford to get sick and eating less healthily due to stress. The poll found that 13% said they were eating less healthily due to having less time to cook because of longer working hours. More than a third of respondents said they were producing few leftovers, with their reasons being to save money because they are meal planning more carefully. The survey also found that the four most common foods people threw away were salad leaves, bread, fruit and vegetables. Uh, that is quite unfortunate, actually, um, when you consider all those people that... Um, uh, uh, are having to struggle or all the people that are actually going hungry all all across the world. So, yeah, that is uh, very tragic. Uh, last few minutes, um, Imam Bhatti, if we, uh, if we can maybe talk about um, the convention that uh, the, I mean, the Youth Association um, held over the yes. past uh, three days of the weekend, uh, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Um, were you there? And um, can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I had uh, the opportunity to attend. But this year... Um it was a bit unique for me. Um, instead of um, instead of partaking um, in uh, any responsibility or any duty that I have, I was a spectator this time. So, um, which was really good to be honest. Um, I don't really get those chances to actually 
absorb all the stuff that's going around there, the right. exhibitions, the speeches, the talks, um, and, you know, um, of mm. course, His Holiness also um, blessed us with his presence on Sunday and yeah. gave a speech as well. Um, and so that's when you enjoy it the most, actually. Yeah, of course, definitely. definitely. That's when you're taking the most. Yeah, exactly, you exactly. Yeah. Um, you have a fresh mental state to take in everything. Um, usually it's uh, fully packed out for the day. And then if you are representing your region in sports, then you're mentally tired as well, Correct. Uh, physically tired. So this time I didn't um, partake in any sports or anything. So oh, no, no football this time? No, 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 this time, not this time. Um, okay. uh, but, um, yeah, no, it was overly, um, it, it was good. Um, it was fully, um, you know, Attendance was full as well. Um, mm. I could tell by the amount of cars that were parked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was seven thousand people attended. So I absolutely. think that's that's the highest so far has been as well since really? um, you yeah. know quite a few years. Um, yeah. But no, it, it generally it was good. It was uh, fully and, and lots of very, you know very healthy activities and um, yeah. very engaging activities. So I just saw a video. I mean, I, I obviously wasn't there. I'm not part of the youth association. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> So uh, young I, man, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, but yeah, it was um, you know there were fireside activities. There was uh, uh, there was a, a cycling uh, there as well. There was uh, some something else for kids as well, like uh, you know bouncing castle and yeah. stuff like that. So, and and obviously there were sports. So, yeah. lots to um, lots. It, to it was it was fully. Um, I would say you you occupied throughout the whole day. Um, mm-hmm. If there's something going on. Um, you can go to another site and there'll be there'll be something planned there as well so you know mm-hmm. there, there won't be a time where you're not free mm-hmm. basically you still have something to attend to whether it be the academics that are being held mm-hmm. in the main uh, main uh, um, tent I would say or marquee um, to go into the hub with these various topics that um, you know young young men want to speak about um, and there's very you know um, uh, the hosts are very intellectual in that perspective to give a Islamic perspective and more like a you know, outset for people to, you know, um, who have questions, um, get to get their questions answered. Um, overall, it was a very good time to spend um, throughout my three days. Um, I did quite enjoy it. Yeah, so you've got your uh, spiritual MOT, yes. uh, or, or re-MOT, I yes, should say, yes. after, <laughs> after the two annual conventions. That yeah. you, but, but yeah, you're right, absolutely. When you are actually, when you have... Uh, uh, when you have responsibilities, uh, which you did at both the UK convention and other German conventions, yeah. it's very different. When only when you're you're sort of mentally free and you you're free to ro- sort of roam about and sing and and take in not only the speeches but also the ambience, the um, uh, the activities is yeah. when you enjoy the most. Definitely. Right. Okay. So thank you very much for that. And that brings our segment of um, uh, discussions on what's uh, what's current, what's happening in the community and what's happening um, in the UK around the world to an end. Uh, a very quick break. And when we come back, we will talk about disaster management. So um, how well, for example, we handled the recent floods, um, as well as other disaster uh, disasters that unfortunately are becoming rather commonplace around uh, the world. So disaster management is the topic. We shall be back right after this very, very short break. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. 
Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Uh, welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show where we're about to delve into first topic, which is about disaster management. So September started with the typhoon that ripped through Hong Kong, uprooting trees and flooding the city. It was the first of a slew of extreme weather events that have hit 10 countries and territories in just 12 days. The most catastrophic being the floods in Libya, which have killed more than 11,000 people, according to the UN, and left many thousands missing. Storm Daniel hit the Mediterranean region in the past weeks, the result of a very strong low-pressure system that became a, uh, a medicane, a rare type of storm with similar characteristics to hurricanes and typhoons. The, the storm, which formed on September, September the 5th, affected Greece first. At least 15 people died there, according to the Greek Prime Minister, who called it one of the most powerful storms to ever hit Europe. Turkey felt the impact too, as parts of Istanbul, the biggest uh, city there, saw deadly flash floods. Severe flooding also struck Bulgaria, with at least four deaths confirmed. But the most devastating impact was felt in Libya as Storm Daniel moved across the Mediterranean. The catastrophic rainfall caused the collapse of two dams, unleashing a seven-meter wave, according to the International Committee of the Red Cross. The water gushed through the coastal city of Derna, wiping out entire neighborhoods and sweeping homes into the ocean. Right, I spoke earlier with... um, uh, with the first guest of this segment, uh, Mr. Alex Gray, who is um, who works at the Center for Disaster Philanthropy, let's listen in to what he had to say. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Gray, for joining us. Uh, tell us about the works of the Center of Disaster Philanthropy. Sure. Um, so yeah, um, I work for the Center for Disaster Philanthropy, and our uh, mission is to. Um, uh, help donors give with confidence, knowing that their grants and donations support marginalized communities to rebuild and recover from disasters stronger, um, while staying true to um, our philanthropic and social impact goals. And we do that through um, three different ways, through educational resources, um, through our consulting services, and also through the recovery funds that we manage as uh, an intelligent intermediary for donors. Um, And that's guided by our expert knowledge and relationships. So in summary, we help donors gain a greater return on their philanthropic investment. And, and, And some of those donors are you know, big foundations like eBay and Google um, and, you know, Target, JP Morgan Chase. Um, and they, they work with us because of our unique expertise in philanthropy and nonprofits and disaster response and recovery. Um, because we focus on an equity-centered approach um, that looks at holistic um, disaster and recovery response with long-term view, um, and also because we try to create lasting and positive impact on marginalized communities and, and allowing communities themselves to make decisions in uh, um, planning that's going to affect their response. So that's what we do. Excellent. Thank you very much uh, for that detailed um, uh, um, take on what you do. Um, a natural disaster can be a very crippling um, it can have very crippling repercussions. So what challenges uh, do victims face? 
Oh, there's uh, there's just so many. Um, I mean, first of all, I would say we we don't really like to look at them as passive victims of a disaster, but survivors. Right. Um, and you know, think of them as uh, how do we get um, disaster affected um, survivors to get back on their feet and start driving. <laughs> In terms of the challenges in a natural disaster, I mean, as I said, there's so many. There's the number of deaths associated with the event, um, those confirmed and those also missing. And that's often how a disaster impact is measured, but the impact is so much more. I think, um, you know, the in the early days, search and rescue missions are challenging, especially in earthquake zones where People are trapped under rubble for days, and it's really difficult to reach them and get them uh, out on time to save their lives. And then there's the speed of mobilizing the emergency response, which depends on various factors such as the local government response and preparedness capacity, um, local communities' level of preparedness and response, and the resources that they have available, and also whether a government has got sufficient capacity um, and whether or not they issue emergency declaration and uh, often, you know, whether they call for international assistance. And I think the last um, thing I would say is, you know, with limited resources available, it's, you know, difficult choices have to be made in terms of who we prioritize for getting assistance. And so under the humanitarian principles of impartiality, it should go to the most vulnerable affected groups. And quite often those are groups that are marginalized um, in peacetime, you know, before a disaster occurs, such as, um, you know, those already living in poverty, women and children, older people, um, persons living with disabilities, and then other racial and ethnic minority groups, um, just to give an example. Right. Let's talk about uh, the recent earthquake in Morocco. Tell us a bit more about uh, the impact of that earthquake and the relief efforts um, of your organization. Sure. Um, I mean, the real impact is is, is really unknown. Uh, the full impact at this stage, you know, because we still have data coming in. But I can share some of the latest um, data and updates that we have on impact. So, you know, this was a, a huge 6.8 magnitude earthquake, and it was the strongest one that has um, hit Morocco in over a century. Uh, you know, Marrakesh was affected. It's a popular tourist destination, um, which is, was the most impacted large city with um, 840,000 people. But um, it was felt in many other Moroccan cities, including Casablanca, Agadir, Rabat. Um, and it was also felt in Nigeria and Portugal. I mean, that's how far it was felt. And at least 380,000 people have been affected. The most damage caused by the earthquake is really in the remote villages and towns in mountainous and hard to reach areas. Um, and as boulders led to road closures, access to those um, villages and communities has been really slowing down the rescue and response efforts. So far, we have nearly 3,000 deaths and 5,600 injuries that have been recorded, but that number is expected to increase as search and rescue efforts continue. And, you know, with any earthquake, many people have been displaced from their homes and are seeking refuge in public facilities, and, and many are often resorting to sleeping outdoors. You know, according to the palace, at least 
50,000 homes have been damaged. And then, you know, finally, there's the impacts in terms of the infrastructural damages made to schools and homes and health facilities, water infrastructure and, and such like. So needs are going up, but the availability um, of services are going down. And that means that the systems and infrastructure that provide access to these basic needs for survival, such as food and water and healthcare, they're completely overstretched and they're unable to meet all the needs, which is why there's such a need for more support for the earthquake survivors. Right. In terms of your disaster management, uh, how different is usually the support given to countries which have been flooded versus those where uh, an earthquake has um, has occurred? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, natural disasters tend to get more... Oh, well, we don't really call them natural disasters. We we know there's a natural hazard, like an earthquake or a flood, but you only really get a disaster when a hazard meets a vulnerability. And so, um, you know, that's when the real disaster occurs. And, and so we can deal with the vulnerabilities uh, beforehand. But in terms of um, floods and earthquakes, I think, it really depends on, sadly, the media images that are coming through at the time of the event and how much um, you know media coverage events are getting. So earthquakes and floods can both be absolutely devastating. But um, what we see is really that uh, earthquakes tend to get more coverage on the news because you can see uh, a lot more visible damage. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, some of the biggest disasters are actually in conflict settings and they just don't get enough coverage, um, you know, unless you're talking about countries like Ukraine, sadly, where there's obviously a lot of issues around race coming into that. But, um, but I think it really, as I said, sadly for philanthropy, you know, we have figures that show that most money comes in around the time uh, of the media coverage and the media is in the aftermath. And um, when the media moves on, sadly, the interest in the disaster moves on. Um, I think I, that, that's what I would say about that. Yeah, that's uh, pretty sad, actually. So in, in your experience, Alex, uh, on average, how long after an earthquake or a, or a flood? Let's talk about earthquake because they're different um, uh, events. Uh, so how long after an earthquake, for example, the one that we saw in Syria or uh, the one in Morocco, uh, do we begin to see life getting back to some sort of normality? Yeah, I mean, that, that really depends. I mean, like, you know, for us at uh, the Center for Disaster Philanthropy, we, we focus on recovery and resilience. So, you know, this is something that's particularly close to our heart. And, you know, that we look at recovery as an approach, not necessarily a time. And it can often take months, if not years, to, um, to start to recover. And there's a number of factors that go into that. I mean, you know, you can just look at disasters that happened even 10 years ago and many families and neighborhoods are still struggling to rebuild after those disasters Mm -hmm. you know including even here in the united states with hurricane katrina which was over 10 years ago they have not um started they've not recovered from that disaster yet so for survivors of the moroccan earthquake their recovery is just beginning 
But what I would say about that is that, you know, recovery can start anytime. I think as soon as the search and rescue efforts are over and we have recovered and um, saved as many lives as possible, uh, you can start to see results pretty fast. Um, I, you know, I just got back from the Syria-Turkey border a few weeks ago and that was six months after the event. And, you know, there's still rubble that has to be cleared away. And so until that um, uh, until though that has been fully taken care of, it's going to be really hard to rebuild. You know, people even in Turkey, uh, which is a relatively wealthy country compared to some of the other countries that we see these disasters, they are still um, trying to clear the debris and make way for um, people to get back into shelter. And so there's a lot of camps and um, internally displaced um, persons shelters and that will be the same in Morocco as well for some time but we re- but we encourage people to take a two-track approach deal with the immediate needs of people who need life-saving support but also quickly get them back on the road to recovery and we encourage our donors to focus on those longer-term recovery results and don't forget about them um, as soon as the media cycles move on yeah, absolutely. And that's the saddest part, really. So how do you then um, support yourselves? How do you raise funds in, in, in a situation where media has moved on to, to the next big thing? Again, that's a great question. And it's, um, it's through a number of uh, different channels. I mean, we, uh, work, we have a very strong marketing and communications team and we have a very strong um, development team with very strong relationships with our uh, funders and donors. And I mentioned some of them before, you know, big corporates and foundations, as well as our individual givers and supporters, which we are extremely thankful to. You know, they're um, very loyal and, 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 and trust us when, even though the media cycle has moved on, um, they trust that we have that expertise to know where the greatest needs are. And we often are serving those under covered, um, you know, crises in, in the news. And so the other way is that we have an education um, pillar to our work. And um, we, you know, we focus on educating and informing donors um, through a wealth of different products on our website, which is, um, you can visit at disasterphilanthropy.org and see for yourself. And it's intended to make funders more informed givers. So we offer um, detailed issue insights into specific topics, such as earthquakes and the different types of issues that come out of earthquakes in particular. We we look at disaster profiles, so you'll see that we have a specific one on Morocco with links to lots of great resources. Mm. We host webinars to educate donors and give them advice on what to give, and we bring in local actors and local humanitarian leadership from those countries where the disaster is. And we, you know, we write blogs and conduct research as well. And one of the the last piece I'll say on research is, you know, we produce an annual report called the State of Disaster Philanthropy, and our latest research on the allocation of philanthropic disaster assistance is, unfortunately, um, in our view. 90% of funds go to immediate relief and response. Only 1% goes to risk reduction and mitigation. 1% to disaster preparedness. 2% to rebuilding recovery. 
which is completely insufficient. Wow. And then 6% to, you know, multiple other strategies. Um, and so we are really trying to shift the needle on that and try to get more of that money into the longer term recovery and resilience piece to help communities get back on their feet. You also focus uh, a bit on um, education and prevention. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So the education and prevention piece is, um, you know, some of those products that I just mentioned on our that are available on our website. And so for anyone listening, you know, I would say visit disasterphilanthropy.org and, you know, check out all of the educational products that are available. Um, I think that, you know, we have um, our website, but we also do targeted outreach as well and have a number of clients and donors that we regularly send updates to so that they're kept aware and educated about um, the um, current uh, priorities as we see them around the world, even the ones that might not be getting recovered in the the news cycles. And then in terms of preparedness, we do invest whenever we are funding any disaster response and recovery, we're always looking to make sure that um, resilience and disaster preparedness is built into any recovery and reconstruction effort so that communities are better prepared for any future disasters. Because we know that where a disaster strikes, the risk is that those communities may be susceptible to more disasters in the future and we want to prevent the same impact from happening next time. Excellent. Thank you so very much, Alex, for joining us. Uh, really appreciate this. I think we should be okay with this. Um, I think, uh, yeah, the voice was clear and um, and hopefully you wouldn't get much feedback as well. But I think we were able to, uh, to get uh, most of it uh, in pretty good quality. Right, so that was uh, Mr. Alex Gray, who works at the Center for Disaster Philanthropy um, uh, across the Atlantic in the U.S., uh, we are talking about uh, disaster management, disaster relief management, uh, how important that is and how important, um, uh, how much more important that is becoming uh, because of climate change. As I mentioned earlier, um, we've had um, typhoons and earthquakes um, in the last, um, uh, only in the last two months. Uh, we have had floods, we have had earthquakes, and we've had um, we've had extreme weather uh, across many countries um, uh, around the world. So this is something which uh, which unfortunately will uh, increase in need of both need and importance. Right. Um, before we uh, go to our um, uh, our next guest, actually we we do have our uh, next guest uh, on the line. So let me. Uh, go straight to our next guest. Um, Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to Miss. Um, uh, uh, sorry, to uh, to Usman Deen, uh, who is from Humanity First UK. Mr. Deen, can you? Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Mr. Deen. So, um, firstly, tell us, uh, give us an overview of the disaster response activities of Humanity First. So on the 8th of September, um, we, we, our systems, um, you know, prompted us on an earthquake, which was about 6.8 magnitude, um, affecting provinces in and around 
um, Marrakesh, the Safi region. Um, you know, these are regions around the Atlas Mountains, which are have very historic infrastructure and rural communities. Uh, six of these provinces were affected, and hundreds of thousands of aftershocks. Um, and it was one of the worst earthquakes um, the country had in 120 years. Um, so it was straight after our systems had told us that there was an earthquake, um, we carried out an assessment immediately in, in the UK and in the USA. Um, and once we had confirmed the details of the earthquake, uh, we, we decided that we were going to send a team out to do an assessment on the ground. Um, within, uh, you know, a day or two, we had our teams land in Marrakesh, um, which is about 50 kilometers from where the earthquake, the epicenter. Um, and and we, our, our teams went and did an assessment on the ground um, which showed us and identified the needs, um, you know, those that were affected. Mm-hmm. Um, um, my question is that um, what short-term provisions were provided to those who had unfortunately lost their homes due to the disaster? We've provided, so far, we've, we've got uh, a fully-fledged operation on the ground, mm-hmm. uh, ma- mainly delivered by the UK teams. Um, we have so far uh, provided various kinds of aids uh, to thousands of people which have been affected. Um, initially, we, our support was uh, to support the government clear the roads because, uh, as I said, uh, the, the impact was in and around the mountainous area, Atlas Mountains, and the roads uh, are very narrow, um, and it's uh, the roads were, you know, very difficult for aid to get in to those that had been impacted. So initially, um, our starting point was to support the government clear these roads um, and then you know we're, we're, we're talking about people which ha- have been living there for thousands and thousands of years you know yeah. th- these people have a very uh, strong uh, history um, that they're self-sufficient um, but because of the fact that said, the roads were blocked um, the, the, f- the first uh, you know the first thing we did was support on blocking those roads um, and so they didn't have provisions which they ordinarily would have had um, because of the road blockages. So we started off by providing, uh, you know, basic food provisions, mm-hmm. water, and that kind of stuff. But the earthquake itself has has meant that they've got uh, either their houses have completely been destroyed or damaged. Um, and so uh, what what we're doing is beyond the immediate short term. Um, aid provisions such as food, water, mm-hmm. um, sanitation. Um, the long-term need is certainly sanitation uh, needs, uh, given the lack of water provisions they have. Uh, sheltering, of course, uh, tents, um, and then long-term development of, of houses. And we're involved in uh, each and every, um, you know, whatever aid they need. Um, we're, we're currently moving from phase uh, one, which is uh, immediate aid, uh, to uh, start to think about how we can support them on a long-term basis, working with lots of uh, uh, partners on our ground associations. Mm-hmm. They call their charities on the ground. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you were mentioning about the phases um, that you are in phase one right now. For our listeners out there, how usually, what is the recovery process? Um, how long is the period um, where, you know, earthquake has been hit for that area to recover and, you know, go back to normal, etc.? Oh, that, that could take uh, forever. When I was speaking about phases, that's just internally um, oh, okay. our step. So we'll do an assessment um, and then following an assessment, once we start delivering um, delivery, phase one is usually immediate, whatever we can provide, immediate response, immediate aid. And then phase two and two is usually, um, you know, uh, making sure that we've got a, a roadmap uh, we have partnerships. We have the infrastructure on the ground, uh, to, and then and then we start thinking about how we can we can support uh, people, um, you know, long term, mm-hmm. um, and have social programs at the back of uh, de- uh, devastations. Um, but but how long is 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 a piece of string? It could take. It very much depends on how quickly the government can move. How quickly the government uh, allows uh, support. Um, where they might need it, whether mm-hmm. that's from uh, international communities or whether that's from uh, people on the ground, uh, local communities, um, and and usually it, it could take um, you know several years after to to even uh, rebuild that infrastructure, yeah. uh, support those communities that have been impacted, um, and it could take several years. Mm-hmm. Um, you you're also mentioning that right now the first thing that. You know, after I'm blocking the roads, etc., the first thing that they will need is, you know, food, medicine, etc. Um, from now till after six months, will that kind of change in the aspect of what um, the requirements are? Yes, yeah, so, so food provisions, uh, the need for food provisions has already changed. This, this mm-hmm. is what was, what was needed immediately because of the fact of, as I said, the roadblocks. But as I said, these people are, are quite sufficient. They've yeah. been living there um, for a long time. So they've, uh, in terms of food provisions, um, they, they've got the means to government very quickly, um, including uh, local uh, charities. Uh, they're called associations, they're local asso- associations, together with international partners. That was the first thing that was delivered to them, mm. uh, food provision. So that's, that's no longer uh, a need. Um, what, what is a need at this stage is definitely sanitation because th- it takes time to build infrastructure. It takes yeah. time to uh, rebuild housing. It takes time um, to, to, to support. Uh, you know, the pipe work, uh, electricity and that kind of stuff, the infrastructure to put that back into place. And so um, th- there is a, a, a need uh, to support the sanitation of uh, these these communities that have been impacted. Um, the, the weather's, of course, changing. Um, mm. And so th- they're in need of blankets, uh, of tents, um, a- anywhere where, where they can survive through the winter, while the government uh, and international communities um, support the Moroccan government, uh, rebuild that infrastructure uh, and rebuild houses. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, so my final question for those listeners who are listening to your, you know, your work that you've done, what Humanity First have done, what can they do to help um, such cause? 
there's lots of things that you could do. You could uh, reach out to, uh, you know, uh, our, our, we've got branches um, all over the world. Um, I would con- uh, check whether there's a, a registered branch uh, close to you to see if there's any any do- donations that we might be taking. Um, but certainly in terms of funding, there's, there's, a, there's a huge need um, for, for funding. Uh, you can go on our website um, and you can you can uh, f- uh, fund us, uh, donate on our website. You can also follow us on Instagram uh, and, uh, you know, you'll have uh, a detailed, uh, you, you, you'll be able to follow us in terms of um, understanding exactly where we've got to with the operation, um, how much funding was needed, um, and if it's beyond funding, what kind of support that you might be able to give uh, to an operation, uh, whether that's uh, there on the ground or support that you can provide here by doing, for example, research. Um, uh, if, if there's IT skills that you can provide, that's something we could we can certainly uh, advise. But any volunteer that's interested in either funding, then please go onto our website uh, or our Instagram page. Um, if it's more than that you're willing to do, then again, please get in touch and, and we can have a discussion around how perhaps you can you can support. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Osmandine, for joining us this morning. And thank you very much for this uh, excellent overview of what uh, you've been able to do to support Morocco. Uh, all the best with all the great work that you do. May peace be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. So that was Mr. Osmandine, who is the head of disaster response at Humanity First uh, UK. And uh, you can go to the website humanityfirst.co.uk. If you like to, if you would like to check uh, all the other great work that they uh, they do, they are uh, a charity associated um, uh, or, or charity within the the Muslim community, I should say. Right. Um, um, we are coming to the uh, news break, and um, we will come back and um, wrap up this first topic of uh, disasters and disasters happening around the world. So please do stay tuned. Um, We will also start our second topic, which is about those people who are always late. So do stay tuned. News. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. 
Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. The time is 8.03 a.m. and you're listening to Daniel Zia and Imam Nabil Bhatti. We have been talking about uh, disasters and disaster relief management over the last uh, half an hour or so. Um, we will not talk uh, talk about how important it is in Islam to help the poor, help the needy, help those uh, affected by these uh, natural disasters um, uh, all across the world, irrespective of their caste, creed, background or color. Um, Imam Bhatti, um, what would you like to say about that? I think um, the perfect way to analyze regarding the service of humanity is to see the actions of the Holy Founder of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, his actions portrayed um, the perfect way to serve humanity. Um, there's a very variations of a hadith, a hadith meaning the sayings of the Holy Prophet sallallahu The compilation of his actions um, in one hadith is narrated that on the day of judgment, Allah will say that I was hungry, you did not feed me. I was thirsty, you did not give me water. I was sick and you did not meet or comfort me. Upon this, um, those who are being addressed will ask, O oh Lord, when was it that you were hungry and we did not feed you? When was it that you were thirsty and we did not quench your thirst? And when was it you were sick and we did not comfort you? In reply, in reply, Allah the Almighty will say that a person dear to me was suffering in this way and you did not show any compassion or kindness to him. To show love to him would actually have been shown love to me. This, I think, perfectly narrates. It's not just, any, it's not just a specific person who was sick. It could be anyone. It could be your neighbor. It could be your friend or someone you're seeing across the street who's maybe thirsty or something. Um, to show an act of kindness upon them, it's an act of serving humanity. And as we know that serving humanity in Islam, it's in itself is a form of worship. Um, the Holy Prophet wasallam has also taught us that Allah the Almighty is most pleased by those who help the poor, who fill their empty stomachs and who arrange medical treatment for them. Hence, when a person who claims to be a true Muslim it is his obligation and responsibility to assist all those who are facing difficulties and to strive to elevate their distress, alleviate their distress and heartache. Um, the uh, the <coughs> His Holiness, Razumiza Masroor Ahmed, has also um, you know, covered, um, was asked regarding climate change um, on how it can be tackled. Because um, nowadays, because of earthquakes, etc., and typhoons, uh, climate change is a very big topic. Um, as Masrur Ahmed has said, that climate change is a problem everywhere, all across the world, especially in the third world countries where population is increasing disproportionately. Just to accommodate the increased population, nations are developing new residential areas, and because of this, forests are being cut and its deforestation is a major cause of climate change. So you have to be very particular that whenever one tree is cut, two trees should be planted in return. Continuing Hazamiza Masroor Ahmed has also said that fuel consumption should also be reduced. Now people have become very lazy that even if they want to go from one place to another, despite being the distance of only 100 yards or 200 yards, instead of walking to the place, they use their motorbike or cars. 
in this way pollution is increasing there are so many other factors which are causing pollution and climate change so we have to be very careful um, although he has mentioned we cannot say that because of the fear of climate change we should not have children so that's just a very small summary regarding that Excellent. Thank you very, very much uh, for that, Imam Nabil Bhatti. And with that, we will take a very short break and we come back. When we come back, we will delve right into the second topic, which is about why some people are always late. If you want to contribute towards uh, this topic, uh, an interesting one, that is, please do um, call us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We will be back right after these messages. Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Persecuted for your beliefs, jailed for your faith, and exiled from your homeland, but you refuse to turn to bitterness or vengeance. Instead, His Holiness has emerged as a leader of wisdom and compassion, a champion of nonviolence among nations. No society can truly succeed unless it guarantees the rights of all of its peoples including religious minorities. Whether they're Ahmadiyya, Muslims in Pakistan, or Baha'i in Iran, or Coptic Christians in Egypt. I would like very much to confirm my support for the work that His Holiness and the Ahmadi Muslim community are doing, particularly in London. Even I didn't know when I was elected, then my name even will be proposed. The election is the same as the Pope is elected, but without smoke. I know you are a regular uh, visitor and speaker to parliaments and assemblies around the world, whether it's the US Congress or the of the European Parliament. Let it be clear that I am not speaking in support or favor of any particular individual country. What I wish to say is that all forms of cruelty, wherever they exist, must be eradicated and stopped, regardless of whether they are perpetrated by the people of Palestine, the people of Israel, or the people of any other country. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. I'm very glad that the movement like yours will do something to correct this image. Islam means peace. 
I should thank your holiness for your highly enlightened sermon. Not only uh, for the Ahmadis, but I would say for all mankind. Love for all and hatred for none. In this message, not only for Muslims, but for everybody. man, though of humble beginnings, your leadership has made you a figure of global prominence, and you have become a guide for millions of Muslims worldwide. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamualaikum, May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from the London studios of Voice of Islam. Today is Monday, the second of October, twenty twenty-three. The time is eight thirteen a.m. and we're about to delve into the second topic, which is about running late. So why people? Why some people are always late. So every friendship group has at least one person who is known as being the late one. That person may even be you. Why do some people struggle uh, so much with their punctuality? So according to Grace Spacey, the author of Late uh, Time Bender's Guide to Why We Are Late and How We Can Change, describes those of us who are habitually late as time benders who struggle with punctuality, but who are also capable of being very productive under, under tight time constraints. This might be hardwired into aspects of our personality, but according to David Robson, the author of Expectation Effect, we shouldn't let that make us believe there is nothing we can do about this as our personality traits may be more malleable than we realize. So, um, BBC recently shared a video talking about lateness and punctuality. They also shared a YouGov poll in 2014, um, uh, of 2014, revealing that one in five Americans are late to work at least once a week. What could be the cause of this? So, Grace Spacey um, shares that there are people she calls timekeepers who are anxious to be early and on the other side of the scale are time-benders who are not quite on routine. Time-benders have a different perception of time other than, uh, than others. Every minute isn't the same length for them. Are these um, baked into our personality, these traits? According to Dave Robson, author of the book The Expectation Effect, one of the major personality traits of lateness is conscientiousness, which is one of the big five personality traits, which include agreeableness, openness, extroversion, 
and neuro, neuro, neuroticism. Neuroticism, I should say. So what is the psychology behind running late um, and not being able to manage time well, Imam Bhatti? So a study in 2016 by the Washington University looked into the ability of our brains to measure time and found what they called our time-based prospective memory. And in the expert conducted by them, they had to set the time for subjects to complete tasks and allow them to have a clock nearby to check. However, the tasks were designed to be engrossing to distract them from looking at the clock. The results found that some people were naturally better estimating the passing of time and use memory to plan in the future. Grace Pacey in her research found that we can be on time for things that matter, which are subjective and often have consequences. Time bending for social events is a clear example where there is usually no firm deadline or consequence so people can be prone to lateness. However, the consequences for these can also lead to hurting feelings of those close to us. So deadlines and consequences are more important. Uh, David Robson says that once a person is expected to be late, to be the late one, is also is almost ingrained in their personality and they perceive it as a part of them. They will be more likely to continue to be late and less open to correcting their behavior. Recent psychological development revealed that personality traits, as many believe, are not set in stone and can be changed. Studies have revealed that one can train to become conscientiousness. So what are the drawbacks of being late? How can one improve their punctuality? Habitual lateness can cause issues, especially to other, other people, team productivity or team morale. To improve lateness, the mind tools advises to work on these key elements. Disorganization to keep a schedule, look out for a routine that suits you, look, at, look into techniques, techniques that can help procrastination. The other uh, key element is power play, understanding how lateness could affect others and placing yourself in their shoes. Um, avoidance, some people are late to avoid situations or tasks. Taking steps to improve the skills or working on self-confidence can help. However, the most important step is understanding the lateness, especially persistent lateness, can be an issue that directly or indirectly affects yourself and those people around you. Right. Uh, thank you very, very much uh, for that, um, Imam Bhatti. Let's uh, take a very short break. And when we come back, uh, we will continue this discussion on why we are late. If you want to join um, us on uh, on this um, on this discussion, please do call us at 0208-687-7878. Um, actually, I've been told that we now have um, a guest uh, on the line. So let's actually go straight to our guest instead of uh, the break. Um, and the guest is none other than the book I quoted from, which is called Late, A Time Bender's Guide to Why We Are Late and How We Can Change, Miss Grace uh, Pacey. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for joining us. So, um, uh, Grace, this book is uh, is offers a lifeline to the 20% of the population who struggles with lateness and the people who live and work with them. Um, you are, um, the book says that you're a self-confessed self -confessed time bender and you tackle the subject uh, neglected by other psychologists and the first time reveal uh, surprise, surprising truths about why we are late. So, tell us, 
why are people late? Why are those 20% of people always late? Well, the surprising truth is we were born that way. Hmm. We get an awful lot of criticism and people expect us to just be able to change our behaviour. But it's a lot, it's not as easy as that. It actually goes back to Carl Jung, who did a lot of work in personality type. Mm -hmm. And um, some people will be familiar with um, something called the Myers-Briggs personality type or MBTI. And um, it was that, I do a lot of work in that area. And I have to say, I have been late all my life. (laughs) And guess what? I don't like being late. I want to be early. Hmm. Something in my subconscious makes me late. And... You know, these days, you imagine you can find the answer to anything on the internet. But <laughs> I could find sixty thousand books on on procrastination, mm-hmm. but I, I mean, there was one book on lateness called mm-hmm. "Never Be Late Again," and it was by somebody who wrote it. I don't know, twenty five years ago, and it sadly died ten years ago, and there hasn't been anything really since. So, I decided to do my own research, and that's where my book came about. Excellent. So, right. So you're saying that this is a, this is a, a, a defect in in our genes. I wouldn't call it a defect because it's a personality, and <laughs> personalities have a have a mixture. Um, so we have some positive characteristics, and if it was a defect in our genes, and you got rid of that, you would also get rid of people out there who, you know, if you say, "Oh, could you just help me with this, please." Um, you would find everyone saying, no, I'm sorry, I've got my time planned out, I know exactly how long is everything's going to take me, and uh, no, I have no room to help you. <laughs> so um, it's, a, it's a sort of a basket of characteristics. Right. And actually, the underlying, I don't know how interested you are in the underlying psychology. Yes, absolutely. It's actually, um, so Carl Jung with the, with the um, what is now the Myers-Briggs, he just had four simple pairs of opposites and one of them we are all very familiar with which is extrovert and introvert yeah and this is one of them and it's actually our subconscious attitudes to closure and on the one hand you've got people who really really like to close things down in a, in a deep psychological way they're not aware of it necessarily but they're the people who if you give them a deadline they love to get things finished in advance put it away a great, great sense of satisfaction about finishing things. And on the other end, you've got people who, when, they, when they're almost finished, think, oh, there's just one more thing I can do to improve this piece of work. Or, or, um, and they just don't really feel comfortable with closure. And it's such a deep psychological thing that people tend not to be aware of it. But that is the underlying psychological truth about why some of us are often late but I can break it down a lot more than that because we're not Please late do. all the time sure. and we do have some control about what we're doing so I'm happy to talk more about that yeah, Please do, absolutely so tell us Yeah, this is a very, very important topic and I'm sure a, lo- a lot of us would uh, uh, would find that way helpful so uh, yeah tell us the underlying reasons that you were going to talk about Well as I, first of all I say we're not late all the time hmm. what we actually need is a real deadline with consequences and if we have that we are good at being on time i won't say we're good at being early that's one of the strange things although we want to be early we like being early Mm. we have we avoid being early and so so we aim to arrive at the time we're given 
Um, so essentially a stick policy as opposed to a carrot policy. Is that what you're saying works with these people? <laughs> well, actually, I'd say the opposite. I, actually, I have a lovely um, point in my book about sticks and carrots because um, the stick doesn't work. The, the, the problem with people telling us off for being late, and they rightly should, is that that doesn't actually change our behavior. We, we don't intend to be late. Um, people who are often mm. early will tend to say, you just think your time is more important than everybody else's. Correct. But actually, that's not what's going on in our minds. And one of my missions is to just try and take away some of this aggravation and conflict by simply explaining that what we want to do is be on time. But we then, because of this closure resistance, I mean, the classic thing is we're just about to leave, you know, leave home and... We go and we and we look at our watch and we realise that well we're, we're still in time we've possibly got a minute or two to spare and we suddenly decide that there's something we need to go back and do whether it's change mm. our shoes empty the dishwasher mm. get something out the fridge change change a jacket it's an extraordinary thing but if we think we're going to be early we just do one more thing before we leave um, so that's one way to, that's one thing to be aware of another thing that we do is. We completely blank out the time it takes us to get from doing one task to actually leaving. Um, it's like we imagine we can just teleport ourselves from sitting at our desk or, you know, being in the kitchen or wherever we are to being in the car or going out the door and, um, and leaving. And, of course, if you time it, it takes five to ten minutes to... Hmm. Go and get your, find your keys, find hmm. your phone, put your coat on, sure. lock the door, get, yeah. get get to the garage or wherever you're going. And, and um, a lot of, the, not to mention a lot of unexpected activities that happen in the middle. The dog comes in the middle or your child comes in the middle as well, which you'd probably yeah. not catered for. And, and that, you picked another thing there, which is we are total optimists because once we've managed to do a journey, assume you're driving, we've managed to do a journey in... In, in the fastest possible time because we found the perfect parking space and the lights are all green, somehow, again, in our subconscious, that's the time we get, you know, we leave the house and we tell ourselves we're going to be earlier. But because of this somehow dislike of being early, we then do something before we go and then we find we're just aiming for that time. And, of course, we don't always find the perfect parking space and the lights are green. So then we find we're five minutes late and that's what, you know. Well, actually, Those are the people you can see in any situation, the ones that rush in just just around the time and very often a few minutes late. Those are what I call the time benders. Sure. But actually, Grace, uh, I find it uh, something slightly different, which is that Whenever I actually, you know, intentionally, I, I as, as you say, um, try to be on time, but then I find that the universe almost is uh, is working against me. And, uh, you know, there'll be a traffic jam or there will be, as you said, all the red lights that would otherwise not be there. So on a normal route that you <laughs> that you would go to work at, uh, that you used to go to uh, to work, but um, uh, you know you would one fine day when you are actually thinking that okay I'm going to be on time, but then suddenly you find that the universe is working against you. Why is that? Well, I have to explain to you that the people who arrive on time or early are the ones that expect that to happen. <laughs> <and allow> <laughs> 
Well, they build in 10 minutes extra, Mm. 20 minutes extra, because they know it probably isn't all going to work. Mm. um, So is that the secret then? So is is that the answer that you, you, that that these people... I would like like to just say, when we talked about um, personality types, I would like to say that um, anybody in a job that has a lot of deadlines, and I think you might be one of those, um, is very likely to be somebody who does things at the last minute because it's actually an asset the, the personality type um, as somebody said to me we are all all journalists are adrenaline surfers mm. they have so little time to do their work and they have constant deadlines mm. and they actually enjoy it the people at the other end of the spectrum that don't like that they would not enjoy being a journalist they want to be something with a predictable outcome and a predictable time frame you know, an accountant, a lawyer, some, um, an engineer, people like that would um, would not really enjoy a job where they are always being pushed for time because for them, a certain work, piece of work takes a certain amount of time. Whereas for people like, well, for time vendors, uh, we tend to do 80% of the work in the last 20% of the time. We speed up when the deadline is looming and actually we often do our best work then we actually get a lot of good ideas just before the end the deadline looms and we need those deadlines to stop us carrying on doing you know we don't want to stop but the deadline is very helpful right so um are there any other biological um or physiological factors or or uh, personality types that uh, that affect this um, behavior or have you have you covered most well, uh, yes, I have. I would say, so the, the the broad characteristics of the personality are we are, flexibili- we are flexible, so we'll drop what we're doing to give you a hand. Mm. We, are, we work very well under pressure. We can speed up when needed, so mm. we'll take on extra work. Um, and we also are not very good at following other people's rules, so we like to be independent and make our own choices. We don't... Uh, particularly enjoy a lot of structure Um, and you can extrapolate that at the other end of the spectrum then people do like that so we have we have we are we have advantages that if you wiped us all out (laughs) with a magic wand then um, you would lose an important part of society we do have a contribution to make even though we make people very angry and (laughs) I'd love to say something about the, the people getting angry because we aren't late all the time. We're late when there is when, when there is no real deadline. And that has a very unfortunate consequence because mm. the, the no real deadline comes when we're meeting friends and family. Mm. Mm. So yeah. if we've got to go to the airport and catch a flight, we're perfectly, you know, we are not out of control. We are perfectly capable of <laughs> sure. meeting a deadline. You know, we can get I love the way you put it, Grace. <laughs> you're not out of control. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, so essentially what you're trying to say here is that you're trying to build some empathy for uh, yes, for people like us. Because there's not, no, no, there appears to be very, very little psychological research. Sure, sure. And therefore people simply see it as a negative. But my, but the reason why I call us time vendors is an attempt to take away that word late, which is nothing but a big stick to beat people with, and to say, well, actually... There is more going on, and we don't do it deliberately. And most of us can be late at certain times. And to follow on that point, 
we tend to be late for friends and family, but mm. we will say to them, and most people who are late don't see themselves as late all the time. They say, oh, I can be on time when it matters. Yeah. And of course, if you say that to your friends and family, that really is quite hard for them to hear because it suggests that they don't matter. And that's not what we mean. It's just that because they love and forgive us, there isn't a hard consequence. And in terms of how to overcome this, I'm going to give some advice actually to the people who live with us or work with us to say, it's a very simple rule, but make the deadline real. Don't be kind to us. And <laughs> the, classic, the classic thing people do is that they, um, they lie about the deadline and they, you know, if we're habitual late people, then they'll say, oh, they'll, they'll say it's going to be half an hour before mm. it really is. But if we notice that you're doing that, because we don't like being early for things, we will build that in and it'll actually make us later in the long term. You have to do the opposite. You have to, if you say dinner's at one o'clock, you have to start at one o'clock. And when the late person arrives, full of apologies, um, they have to recognize the consequences of being late. Because if you, if you wait for them every time, mm. they won't take that deadline seriously. It seems it's being cruel to be kind, really. But I would like to say not every culture has exactly the same attitude. And this is um, North, uh, North America, UK, Germany, sort of Northern Europe and Japan and uh, South Korea are the classic places where if you're not 10 minutes early, you can be seen as late. Hmm. Whereas I was recently talking to um, somebody from the Indian subcontinent and she said, well, if we're getting together with family uh, and my auntie says, come for one, if I turn up at one, she opens the door and says, oh, why are you so early? Correct. Because everybody else <laughs> arrives at two. Correct. So very, very it, true. So it's not... So Southern Europeans, Southern Americans, Southeast Asians and Africans tend to work on the principle if everyone is late, then no one is late. And that's a lot easier. <laughs> it, it is certainly, absolutely. And I've lived in, lived in uh, I am from South Asia, but I've also lived in uh, Southeast Asia, so I can uh, totally relate to this. But Grace, I have to say, this is groundbreaking research because you're making so many, like, firstly, when you say we, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You, you're so you're so apt because it is not only about you, it is about me as well. So, uh, you know, the, the, the pronoun is, is absolutely correct. Uh, the other is that, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think this, this makes so much sense to me uh, because all of what you're saying is uh, is absolutely true. I never intend to be late, uh, and it's never about being rude to other people. Uh, it's not not about minding other people's time. It's about uh, it's about me. So wh what are the so so you said uh, you talked about deadlines then. Yeah. Uh, so is the solution then to set deadlines uh, in our own minds as well to help with that? Thank you for asking that because. A made-up deadline, if we just say, I will, tomorrow morning I will get up at whatever and, um, you know, clean the house and by 10 o'clock I will be ready to sit at my desk or whatever, um, we, we can't take that seriously because it doesn't, when I say real deadline, if I explain it, I'd say it needs to be somehow external and with consequences. So the trick to, trick it, to helping ourselves to trick our own subconscious mind, which is really, you know, that's why the big stick doesn't work. We actually need to um, get around this subconscious aversion to being early 
Um, and so the way to do it is to plan ahead. Um, one of the things that works very well for me, particularly if I'm going to a regular event, and can I just say, regular events are our downfall. Regular work, regular class, regular getting to the gym. The more often we do that journey, the more often we find once, as you said, everything went well, the more we tend to take that as our time for leaving the house. So how can we trick ourselves into getting around that? I, you know, from where I live, I try to offer somebody a lift. And actually mm. some people are quite grateful for having a lift. Sure. And of course, I will agree to pick them up at a reasonable time, which mm. gives us enough time to arrive in mm. good time and, you know, get ready for whatever we're doing. So I'm always maybe three to five minutes late for picking them up, but they forgive me because I'm giving them a list. And, <laughs> and also they know. They probably read your book. <laughs> well, I do talk about it sometimes. Um, so that's one thing. So in a way, what yeah. we're talking about is a pre-event deadline. So don't make the thing that you really need to get in time for to be the, the first deadline. Don't let the closure of the check-in desk at the airport be the time you're driving there to try and get to because that's the real deadline don't let the the time that the theater actually starts or the big match actually starts to be your deadline so arrange to meet up with friends if you're going to go out if you're going to say a wedding or something really important or or catching a flight i mean it's not unknown to book a hotel the night before and that's so that once you're there you're not going to be late. So anything you can do to, um, you can arrange to drop some, drop your car at somebody's house and share the last part of the journey. You could, calling a, calling a cab or Uber is a really good way of getting an mm. earlier deadline in. Mm. Um, just try not to, uh, to drive there because then that will be your deadline, will be the thing that will make you miss it. Is your book also helpful to those who, who generally believe in lastminute.com? You mean the people who I like to be early? <laughs> the people who are never early. The people late. who are always late. The people who are always late. Um, I would say that there is a, a neurodiversity area in what we're talking about. And people with ADHD... Um, have something that they have termed time blindness, which says that they literally are not aware of time. Now, it's a it's a sort of a grey area between people who are late and people who have ADHD, but there's no question about it. There are plenty of people who don't have ADHD who are sometimes late, particularly for meeting up with friends and family. Um, so if you do have ADHD, then you have a whole spectrum of, of uh, behaviors that um, I'm not trying to help. You know, this is, I'm not offering the solution for those. So the, the, the tips and tricks that I um, like to offer, there's no reason why they can't work for somebody with ADHD as well. Mm. But there are a lot of successful people out there who have, uh, have a lateness habit who don't have ADHD. Sure. One of the other things I was going to suggest for people who um, who live with us hmm. is um, don't get mad at us. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is, sure. if you imagine if your partner is always late, and particularly if you're somebody who's always early, that can be an absolute trigger for conflict. But hmm. if you then get cross 
and start shouting and you can imagine shouting you know aren't you ready yet we've got to go mm. then um that over time starts to become a bit of a signal and the person is always late goes oh they're really annoyed now i better get a move on and that isn't good for anybody's relationship or anybody's health really so is there anything else you can do and i will say having a partner who is in this situation i'm pleased to say he he plays the bass guitar and when he is ready and waiting for me he starts to play now i can hear that all around the house and that's my start that not my starting signal but that's my you better hurry up because you're sitting down there waiting um right. much better than than shouting uh oh. it's just a suggestion so try not to get into a pattern of getting cross because <laughs> it's not good for uh, absolutely not um is uh, for these people is it better to or or would giving uh, an earlier deadline work with these people for example you know if you if you're if you call a cab at 10:30 you tell them no it's uh, it's coming at 10 knowing that they will be ready <laughs> they'll be off in our late would, would that strategy work <laughs> well there's this thing about it needs to be real so it does work once and it it if that person knows that that's your tendency then if they know that you're going to build 10 a half an hour into things they are I'm sorry to say they're going to build that into their own timing and they're going to assume that half an hour late is on time which could be unfortunate <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yes yes absolutely um it, do you think we should admit that it's a very very annoying behavior it is if people are late for us we know exactly how annoying it can be Um, yeah. the only defense i've got is and it sounds pathetic but it's that we don't do it on purpose we aren't doing it to disrespect them we are actually very sorry empathize with us yes and and we very often resolve that we are going to be on time but it is a deep psychological preference absolutely we we are good people by heart so, so empathize <laughs> with us we are, we're not bad people we don't mean bad we only mean good um, if anybody wanted to know where they sat on the section my on my website i've got a, a free um quiz which um helps you to know if you are i call the other end timekeepers so you you're a timekeeper a time bender and those people in the middle who have that comfortable relationship with time where they're not obsessively early and some people are very anxious about the need to be early and actually they're the ones that get most annoyed with people who are late because they've been waiting longer than anybody else and it goes deeply against their values but if you want to know where you sit my website is timebending.co.uk or if you do want to look me up i just would like to say my surname pacey is spelled p a c i e which people sometimes don't realize so grace pacey with an i e Excellent. Uh, Grace, it was uh, an absolute delight to speak to you this morning. Uh, thank you very much. This is uh, this has been a, a revelation for me. I think this is groundbreaking stuff you're doing and I and I mean it in uh, absolute every, every sense of the word. Thank you yeah, very much. Also, Sorry. I should also mention I have a TED talk which again if you look up Grace Pacey it's TEDx. Okay. Um I summarize a lot of these ideas in the TED talk. So that'll give you a 15 minute summary 
if you want to do some more uh, thinking on the subject. I would love to do that as well. Grace, really appreciate you coming on. Um, I will definitely uh, listen to that TED Talk and pick up a copy of your book and go to your website. But uh, <laughs> but once again, uh, for those who uh, missed, the, the website is timebending.co.uk and uh, the TED Talk would be in the name of Grace Spacey, Spacey being P-A-C-I-E. Grace, Really appreciate it. Uh, lovely speaking with you. Have a lovely week uh, and lovely rest of the day. Peace be with you. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope we're on time for everything we do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Likewise. Fingers crossed. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was uh, Grace Spacey, author of the book called Late, A Time Bender's Guide to Why We Are Late and How We Can Change. Um, a really interesting, very, very interesting, and I and I and I absolutely repeat, you know, groundbreaking stuff there, in terms of building empathy for people who are late sometimes and don't mean to be late. Right. Um, let's now um, go to our last guest uh, for this segment, who is Ms. Sitara Baruch Akbar. Uh, she is a multiple world record holder. She's a gold medalist and youth ambassador, currently enrolled as a graduate student at the Department of Oncology at the Oxford University, uh, Reuben College in Oxford University. Aslam alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. And Jazakallah, Ms. Akbar, for joining us. Uh, <clears throat> so as someone who serves the community as involved in so many different activities, you have a very busy schedule and having worked with you in the past, I, I know that you do. So how do you manage your uh, your time on a, on a day-to-day basis and how do you ensure that you are on top of it? Um, I think the most important thing for me personally is setting priorities straight. Um, what Mr. Grace was talking about earlier as well is really insightful, seeing how different people view time. But for me, I think that if you know um, what your priorities are, it really, really helps. Um, if you don't know, okay, this is what I need to cook first and this is what I need to do second, it's like shooting by and dark. So what I try and think of it like this time is maybe a jar that I have. And if I put my building stones or important things first, so this is my prayer time and this is my study time, and this is my work time, everything else is like spam and it can trickle and fit in. So if you have some personal hobbies or if you spend time with your family, that can sort of fit into it um, in any place. But you do need allocated blocks in terms of the stones that are going to go into your jar first. So um, I start up by blocking out time for the most important things that are there, and then other things sort of fit into it. Um, and you have to be a little flexible with it too, especially if you're doing a lot of things, but you learn that over time. So I assume you probably do have um, times where you do struggle with deadlines, um, but if you do, so how do you overcome with those struggles? I think that's just natural and it's a part of human nature. Um, I don't think there's anyone out there who doesn't struggle with deadlines, at least at some point. Mm. Um, I think the key to that is just your mindset. Um, so my parents have taught me at a really young age that either you run the day or it runs you. So essentially, either you can chase your problems and deadlines or they can haunt you uh, wherever you're walking. Um, and I think it's the thing that Shakespeare said as well, that it's better to be three hours early than to be a minute late. Mm. So I don't. I think I know that that, doesn't, that mindset doesn't work for everybody, but I personally find that if I had set personal deadlines for myself, um, and I'm, I'm very strict with myself, so I, I, I like to stick policy better. So if I set deadlines for myself and I know that, okay, if I achieve this, I can give myself a little reward or something. And if I miss it, then I have to do extra work. So Mm. that helps me manage deadlines and keep up with those. Are there any specific tools that you may use, um, you know, to um, 
help you with your to-do lists um, throughout the day or something? Um, I did try using a lot of them. So I tried to try all the apps. I tried the paper versions and everything. Um, I think for me, the most manageable thing is having a calendar and mm-hmm. just putting the, the most important things on that calendar. Um, and then day to day, you can keep a little diary and put down notes of what important things you need to do, but don't allocate any specific time for them. I find that if I want to allocate time for things that are not appointments, I need to do it before the working day starts. So if you get up at maybe five, um, six, seven, that is the time that you have to yourself. Um, that is the time that you can allocate. But I, like you were having that discussion earlier about if you want to make time, if you set time like 10 minutes for this, 10 minutes for this, suddenly you lose your keys and you miss your red light and everything and it goes into jumbles and that just gives you stress. Mm. So putting down important things and then well, trusting yourself to be able to manage the rest, I think, is how I would go about it. Okay, um, that's that's pretty good. Um, how will, well would you say you are able to be procrastination? Do you have any advice for those who are especially listening to us right now, especially the young audience who are still studying? I didn't used to be very good at it. I still sometimes have um, problems with it. I think if what we need to remember is we'll never find time for anything. If we want to do something, we have to make it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And time is what we very often want the most at all times, and we use it the worst because we don't manage our lives right. So everything that we're doing today is going to be influencing who we are and what we are in the future. So setting realistic goals for yourself and rewarding yourself when you do complete those goals is a good practice. Um, also things that, like, the deadlines, like you said earlier, um, if you have a little deadline for yourself before the actual hard deadline, that can help. And um, having someone who can hold you accountable is really important. Um, mm-hmm. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, if you are someone who doesn't feel comfortable that, like, oh, maybe I'll put myself off, if you ask a friend or your mom and dad or a sibling to just have a look at your schedule and if you have a hard deadline, just ask how you're progressing with it, that mm-hmm. really helps because sometimes we silence our inner voice, but we can't silence people who are talking to us from outside. Um, and it's not about just being busy, it's what you're busy with. Yep. So making sure that you're putting the first things and the important things at the start and then... Um, Things later can be put on um, whenever you find time. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as studying, etc. Um, I've I myself have studied for seven years. Um, of course, it's quite busy with deadlines, assignments, etc. Um, but I do understand um, you do need a mental break sometimes. So you definitely exactly. Definitely. So how important do you think it is to take time out of your schedule for your own well-being? And personally, how do you how do you um, do it yourself? I think that it, it, that's what makes life worth it. So if you if you know what you're living for and you're enjoying things, you spend time with your family and you spend time doing the things that you like. Um, studying and work uh, aren't the end of the world. These are the things that we have to do. Exactly. Um, that they're just a part of life. So there are other things that need to be part of life as well. So I, I enjoy doing community work a lot, and I, I enjoy teaching other people and. The, reading so I, t- I take our time to do these things because that is um, what helps me grow as a person and that is something that I enjoy so it, it makes the day a little brighter as well I think for students especially it's really important to do these things as well yeah. someone it's not um, my professor recently told me this so when you're at university for example and you have exams coming up and then there's a let's say it's the last year that you guys are together so you might want to um, 
go for lunch or there might be an event or a seminar that you really want to attend. So you're always going to remember the seminar that you attended with your friends more as compared mm. to um, the time that you spent cramming for another question paper. Mm. So giving value and importance to human relations is, is, is key to life as well because you won't remember what grades you got in one particular module 10 years from now, but you will remember that, oh, yes, I went to this really nice seminar and I learned this new thing. So not just reducing yourself to numbers is important, especially in today's day and life. Definitely. Okay, Zakla, for your time, uh, start up with Rusaiba, um, and have a um, good uh, weekday to you. Zakla, thank you, Charlie. Right, so that was Ms. Sitaraj Barujakbar, who is currently studying at, um, at Oxford University. Right, um, coming towards the end of uh, the show, um, in Islam, uh, timekeeping is something very important and, and counting making sure that every second counts is something very very important um, and and therefore it's important as well to not to waste time um, it, how do you how would you explain that uh, that concept um, within Islam Imam Bhatti? Um, I think for us is uh, as, as a practicing Muslim etc is already laid out for us in a way, um, with our prayers five times a day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that we read all of our five prayers in one go. It's it's actually placed at a specific time during the day. Yeah. Um, um, that gives a sense of how valuable time is mm-hmm. for a practicing Muslim, right? As Fajr being um, the first prayer at early dawn, um, it shows us that after Fajr, there's, there's, there are practices of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu before Fajr to read a pair of prayers, which is called Tahajjad. And then after Fajr, you read your Quran, etc. Right? That's how. That's when the day actually began for the Holy Prophet Sallallahu And then after that, it's proven that um, you know he would partake in um, gatherings, etc. Um, and it's uh, um, he his own practice. Um, disapproved, um, you know, wasting time and money in pursuit of vain uh, desires. Um, advising the importance of tracking the daily activities, um, uh, His Holiness Mr. has said, from the beginning of the day, um, write, down, write, down, write down your activities. For example, if you wake up at 6 a.m., whenever it's for your time, write note it down. Everything which you have done during the day, you must write down. Then at the end of the day, you see what you've done. Um, so for one week, you must write down your plans from morning to evening. You will find out what are the productive things and what are unproductive things you are doing. This way you would know and you will try to manage your time um, better. Azur was also asked at the time when he was studying, um, He said, uh, um, to which he said he was studying electrical engineering at university. Azur asked one of the students and um, he was a very young person. Um, um, Azur advised him that he should concentrate on his studies on the weekends and then when he gets spare time um, he should give some time to the Jamaat, to the Khudam, to the Youth Association um, but never be relaxed in your studying at the cost of Jamaat work. So ideally what it is is that irrespective of whatever you're doing never waste time in um, vain desires etc and make sure that you have a full packed day Um, that helps you in terms of you know your mind wandering about in those desires as well. 
So wherever you have, like like we were mentioning before with the startup Rootsiber, that, you know, there's, of course, there's studies, there's studies, there's work, etc. There's time when you give to your family, your children, your parents. Um, there should be time where you have for yourself. That doesn't mean you go and start doing, you know, um, uh, other stuff, but something that's beneficial for your soul, spiritually, mentally and physically, whether it's playing football, whether it's, you know, going for a walk with your friends or something like that. Um, something that's beneficial um, for your soul. Excellent. Thank you very, very much for that, uh, Imam Nabil Bhatti. And that brings us towards the end of the show today. We've talked about two topics uh, this morning. The first one was about disaster management, and we've spoken to two guests uh, in that segment. And then the second one uh, was about why some people are late. If you've uh, not been able to listen to the show today, you can always go into SoundCloud and listen to the recording. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much uh, to uh, my co-host, uh, Imam Nabil Bhatti. Uh, excellent uh, help from the uh, from the tech room uh, to Mr. Tahir, from uh, Mr. Tahir, and also uh, to our producer uh, Sidra Tulmuntaha, um, all the researchers for doing all the excellent work, and thank you very much uh, for joining us um, and listening to the show. We will be back uh, next Monday with another live episode of the Monday Breakfast Show, but there will be another Breakfast Show tomorrow morning from 7 to 9 a.m., so do join in for that. Until next week, uh, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. of Islam radio. Persecuted for your beliefs, jailed for your faith, and exiled from your homeland, but you refuse to turn to bitterness or vengeance. Instead, His Holiness has emerged as a leader of wisdom and compassion, a champion of nonviolence among nations. No society can truly succeed unless it guarantees the rights of all of its peoples, including religious minorities. Whether they're Ahmadiyya, Muslims in Pakistan, or Baha'i in Iran, or Coptic Christians in Egypt. I would like very much to confirm my support for the work that His Holiness and the Ahmadi Muslim community are doing, particularly in London. Even I didn't know when I was elected, then my name even will be proposed. The election is the same as the Pope is elected, but without smoke. I'm
know you are a regular uh, visitor and speaker to parliaments and assemblies around the world, whether it's the US Congress or the, or the European Parliament. Let it be clear that I am not speaking in support or favor of any particular individual country. What I wish to say is that all forms of cruelty, wherever they exist, must be eradicated and stopped, regardless of whether they are perpetrated by the people of Palestine, the people of Israel, or the people of any other country. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. I'm very glad that the movement will do something to correct this image. Islam means peace. I should thank Your Holiness for your highly enlightened sermon, not only uh, for the Ahmadis, but I would say for all mankind. Love for all and hatred for none. And this message not only for Muslims, but for everybody. man, though of humble beginnings, your leadership has made you a figure of global prominence, and you have become a guide for millions of Muslims worldwide.